episode 377 of the Cyber Law Podcast, brought to you by Steptoe and Johnson. We're lawyers talking about technology, security, privacy, and government. And the views we're about to express do not reflect those of our institutions, our clients, our friends, our family, our pets. Uh, uh, joining me, this is going to be a long and uh, fun news roundup. We've got Mark McCarthy, who teaches technology law at Georgetown and is a senior fellow at the Brookings Institute. Uh, we've got Dmitry Alperovich, who's co-founder and chairman of the nonprofit Silverado Policy Accelerator. We've got Dave Itell, who's an information security specialist and the founder of the Itell Foundation. And I'm Stuart Baker, formerly with NSA and DHS, the host and chief provocateur, and it won't take much provoking today. Uh, we're I want to say one thing. We decided not to cover the Pandora Papers, which broke on Sunday. This is an enormous trove of information full of stories about really rich people and how they're hiding their money, including the uh, reputed illegitimate daughter of Vladimir Putin, et cetera, et cetera. What I'm interested about is that no, none of the institutions that got these papers has any in interest in turning the, the the origin of the papers, who got them and who leaked them, into a story. So there's only speculation, and I think we're going to give that speculation a little opportunity to, to rise over a week, and then we'll talk about it next week. Uh, instead, I wanted to talk a little bit about ransomware. And Dimitri, uh, the Biden administration put out a statement on Friday saying, we're going to get 30 countries together, maybe virtually the first time, and we're going to talk about how to crack down on ransomware. And they said, our G7 and NATO allies, which probably does add up to something close to 30. Beyond that, we don't know what they're planning, but that's a good start. It is a good start. And of course, ransomware uh, pandemic, epidemic, whatever you want to call it, has only been getting worse and worse. We've had a little bit of a brief um, reprieve in August when a few of those groups voluntarily shut down, but now they're back. Our evil is back. You've had new groups emerge that look um, strikingly similar to the old groups. And they're, of course, deciding who is critical and who is not critical, targeting hospitals, targeting food pro providers and the like. So the problem has not gotten any better. It doesn't uh, look like Russia is cooperating. So you have to take other measures. And I think there are a few things that you can do with the summit. The most important thing that you can do is actually start cracking down on illicit cryptocurrency transactions that fuel this whole ecosystem doing know your customer notification, anti-money laundering requirements on these cryptocurrency exchanges, shutting off access to cryptocurrency exchanges in other parts of the world that don't participate in, in, in sort of these law-abiding measures is going to be really, really critical to thwarting bad actors from using these exchanges to transfer their cryptocurrency gains into fiat currency. And just this morning, we had a major arrest in Ukraine of two individuals that were involved in ransomware schemes and uh, as a, uh, there's a video of the Ukrainian police searching their apartments and what do they discover in a shoebox but $350,000 in cash stored in that shoebox. So as appealing as cryptocurrency is, you still can't buy a whole lot with it and the criminals are clearly preferring dollars, sometimes euros, although mostly dollars when, when they get their illicit proceeds and preventing that conversion from cryptocurrency to fiat currency going through these exchanges is really, really critical. So, so would that be your would that be your first priority as, uh, for a uh, coordinated international effort would be saying, let's um, all agree that we're going to do KYC and a variety of other regulatory moves on our banks, essentially, or maybe our cryptocurrency companies, which would make it hard to function as a cryptocurrency company if if 30 well-developed countries were taking a similar regulatory approach. It would be it would have a huge impact if you're cut off from the financial system, you know, as an exchange, you have to work with credit cards, you have to work with banks to get people their funds into the cryptocurrency ecosystem or get money out. And if you can't do that, you really can't function as an exchange. So it would have a massive effect. The other, of course, is cooperation on law enforcement action. This particular action was a collaboration between Ukraine and FBI and Europol and a number of other countries. And you need to do a lot more of that and, and have a focused effort from major national law enforcement authorities on tracking down these criminals, trying to arrest them when you can, particularly when they travel out of Russia or if they're based outside of Russia. Like, And the third thing is probably coordinated offensive action. So I wrote an op-ed in the New York Times 
in the last few weeks talking about the need. And that to- was, I, I got to say, that was the, a, a great op-ed. And, and, and typically, El Paravician in its kind of cold-eyed assessment of what has to be done. And, and you basically said, we have to do a lot more. We, we do. And, and the goal is not to deter. I think that's what people sort of oftentimes uh, when they think about offensive action, they think that it's going to deter these criminals. It won't deter them, but it can slow them down. You can go after their money. You can shut down their infrastructure. You can even dox them by publicizing details about them that you can discover through offensive actions, make their life exceedingly difficult. And we should be doing that, of course, in the U.S., but we should be doing that with, with our allies across the five eyes and, and perhaps even broader with NATO and other countries that, that have the capabilities to participate. So I, th- there's a story in the Wall Street Journal, you know, which I, I take with a grain of salt because it comes from a plaintiff's attorney who filed a lawsuit against the hospital. But it, it makes a plausible claim that a newborn essentially was born brain dead because the hospital where the delivery occurred was under a ransomware attack and they couldn't use any of their electronic monitoring. And the paper monitoring that they were doing was one person who just wasn't focused. And therefore, the the child was born with an umbilical cord around its neck and that cut off the blood supply to the brain. So it is, you know, there are actual serious medical consequences from these ransomware attacks. Absolutely. A truly heartbreaking story. And the text messages of the medical staff that are being released as part of this lawsuits are, are, are truly damning because you literally have doctor texting to one of their nurses saying this was preventable. And the fact that the patient records were all locked up, the fact that the nurses outside of the delivery rooms couldn't watch the heart monitors because of the ransomware attack all had an impact. Now, could they have you know, done something different to try to prevent that death perhaps? And, and we'll find that out in the course of a lawsuit. But I think there's little doubt that the ransomware attack had an impact here. And, you know, you may have the first case of, of a death that, that was caused by, by a ransomware attack. Di- directly attributable. I agree. Yeah. I, there, there have been studies that show that statistically you have a higher mortality at hospitals that are under ransomware attack. But you can't use that to say this person died. But in this case, there will be attribution of the attack, to the death to the attack. So I... I see a lot of activity on crypto policy still, uh, and the Biden administration is now talking about regulating stable coins. Do you think that has something to do with their use in ransomware, or is this just a regulatory concern of another sort? No, th- this is actually a huge issue that's not related to cybercrime for a change, but stable coins, for those that don't know, are cryptocurrency coins that are tied to fiat currency. So to a dollar or euro and have a one-on-one conversion ratio. And they're very, very important to the ecosystem because that's an easy way for people to store their funds in cryptocurrency without the huge fluctuations that you may get if you're storing them with a Bitcoin or Ethereum because you're tied to to, to a dollar or, or, or a euro and you're still within the cryptocurrency ecosystem. The, ch- the big challenge with the stable coins has been how are they backed? And one of the biggest ones, Tether, that has 42 billion, or at least uh, had 42 billion last spring in assets, turns out wasn't storing any U.S. treasuries, wasn't storing any U.S. cash or gold, but was investing them in commercial paper that people had uh, a lot of concerns about because there's a lack of transparency. There was even some rumors, which apparently have not uh, come to pass, that they may have even invested in some Chinese companies like Evergrande that are in the process of going under. And, that, uh, and the leverage that is created in that system could have huge effects on our traditional financial system outside of cryptocurrency. And that, I think, is a concern. You know, could there be another Lehman's that is caused by a stable coin operator that goes under and, and triggers um, huge um, ripple effect um, throughout the whole ecosystem because of the impact on stocks and bonds that are used to back up these stable coins? So long overdue. We need some transparency here. You know, if you're going to be a fiat currency in, in crypto, you have to be backed by something that is stable, just like a mutual fund is. And that, 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 that I think, is a really, really important move by the Biden administration. But the other thing that I think is important f- from a ransomware perspective that people don't often appreciate is that the good news uh, about cryptocurrency is it is traceable. Everything is on the blockchain. And for most of them, the blockchain is public. There's the Monero privacy uh, focused cryptocurrency that doesn't have a public blockchain. But with everything else, you can sort of tra- trace the transactions. You may not know who the owner on the other end is because the wallet is anonymous, but you know who owns that wallet. 
and where the money is going from that wallet. And that has helped investigators to discover, you know, how to potentially recover some of these ransoms, being able to track tax uh, cheats and, and money laundering activities. And it's increasingly a key tool by the IRS and, and, and law enforcement agencies to investigate cryptocurrency-based crime. Yeah, I, I, I think it was Tether, in fact, that, that stopped a you know, some hundreds of millions of dollars ultimately going because they spot they they had tracked the the transfer in real time. It went through Tether. They they stopped some of it and and ultimately called back most of it. So yeah, it it it, it suggests that over time, as forensic tools get better, unless the innovators in fintech are determined to defeat law enforcement, we're probably going to see more more of these tools and it'll be harder to hide stuff. That's right. Okay, let's 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 talk now about pending legislation. Dave, the House Intelligence Authorization Bill doesn't usually make cyber law news, but there were a couple of surprises in the bill that Chairman Schiff has now reported out to the House. The one I was focused on was something that responds to the, I guess, ex-NSAers who went to work for Project Raven in the UAE and, you know, through a process of hydraulic pressure, ended up doing UAE intelligence collection that the U.S. never would have approved of, and they ended up accepting enormous fines and losing their opportunity to work in some of these fields again. The Intel bill says we're going to stop that, essentially. I thought it was uh, uh, pretty interesting, and I, I have some sympathy for the, for the House view on this. What's your thought? Well, I, I would say that it's an easy port, part of the bill to have sympathy with, especially because we've seen, you know, members of the intelligence community, you know, do very, very dumb things. And it really does look like, if you follow the reporting, that Chairman Schiff is taking this almost very personally. And that's kind of where I think it starts going perhaps a little askew, because what he says is that, you know, to quote him, he says, people in the intelligence community develop skills necessary to protect our country against foreign bad actors, and that intellectual property really belongs to the United States. And so I think that's where you start getting from what could be very good policy to what feels almost like retribution cast into law. Yeah. And the current the current language in the bill has a five year criminal penalty, which I think is pretty significant for failing to report where you are working if you are a former intelligence community member who has access to methods and sources. And it's a it's a pretty broad sweep, but it's interesting that it's like a broad sweep that only applies to the intelligence community as opposed to, say, the military or many other members of sort of the larger group that handles methods and sources and sensitive government right. information. Cyber command, you know, <laughs> cyber command. I mean, there's, there's I, a lot of things I, here. And, yeah, and special forces. Right. Those guys all know the, the, the basic uh, methodologies. Uh, well, I, that's and, the truth. Yeah, they are basic methodologies, right? Like, yeah. so you nailed it on the head. There's no secret magical sauce of learning how to do penetration testing that you wouldn't get out of a very, very high-end penetration testing company, right? So that's sort of where this goes wrong. It comes off as sort of almost peevish in a sense. It's like, we know that these this small group of people did something bad and we're going to like penalize everybody, make sure it doesn't happen again with a very stiff penalty, I would say. Yeah. I, I, I agree. I agree with you on, on both the fact that it is, it is um, very harsh and then it tries to make up for the harshness by saying, but don't worry, generals, it won't apply to you. Uh, and I, th I just think that's wrong. It, there are people at the State Department. There are people uh, on the NSC staff that are equally familiar with all these sources and methods and who are completely free to go work for the UAE the day after they leave the uh, the government. And that's, I, if they're going to do this, they ought to impose it on people who have the knowledge. And then second, the it is a five-year felony, and it applies if you 
directly work for someone who directly or indirectly is funded by the government and it could be something as simple as providing security advice to a company that is subsidized by a government which means that if you go to be the chief security officer of Airbus you might have a problem I, I, I or the Atlantic Council for that matter I, I so I, I do think it needs some work but what they what these guys did just cries out for regulation. And and Dave, I, I agree that Schiff is taking this personally, but I've heard from other people who've been on that committee who said they were hearing about problems like this well before this latest scandal broke. And the Republicans in many cases feel just as strongly as the Democrats that this needs to end. Yeah, Dimitri. Well, I think as a matter of policy, we should think about whether we want to allow any American citizen to become a cyber mercenary for another state, whether they've worked in the intelligence community or they haven't is almost besides the point. They could have been a contractor. They could have had zero connection to the intelligence community and simply worked in industry, but now would go and support foreign government's efforts that potentially are opposed to U.S. policy. And if that's something that we want to shut down, and I'm sympathetic to that view, quite frankly, we should shut it down for everyone, regardless of your previous employment record. The fact is that this contract started out as something the State Department licensed to a U.S. company so that they could provide this capability to the UAE, which needed it in part to track uh, people who were uh, plotting terrorism. So that was very much in our interest uh, uh, because the UAE would have been more enthusiastic about doing this on their own than just handing over names and uh, reports to the U.S. government. So uh, there are times when we are going to want to take advantage of our allies and give them capabilities, but it probably ought to be a government-to-government decision rather than an individual hiring decision. But Stuart, part of the problem here is defining what it means to be, you know, working for a foreign government when, you know, the way this bill is written, you know, Saudi money that funds some, you know, large investment vehicle that then funds a startup would have, you know, follow through effects. You you as a intelligence community member would not be allowed to work with and you may not even know that that's where the money that funds your company comes from if you're, you know. So I think some of the definitional problems are very rough in this bill. It's very hard to get through them and apply what we want to do for a policy standpoint. There may be a better way to handle uh, what could charitably be called morons who are wandering around the earth selling their skills to, uh, (laughs) you know, authoritarian regimes, right? There may be another angle on this that's not some sort of criminal bill. I, I, I agree. I think I, they're not more on so much as moral idiot savants, right? So they, they, they've got an enormous Possibly. talent, but, but, but the, the moral sense might be a little less than fully developed. Uh, and right, also so, people so, get compromised, right? So I think penalizing yes. people who are compromised is not always the best choice. You sometimes want to bring them back into the fold yep. in a way that works for your interests. That's a much better play sometimes. Yeah. And there was other stuff in this bill you would like or not like. And one of the interesting things is one of the, you know, O days that you purchase off of Americans has been in the news, but O days that you purchase from foreign companies, right? The the NSO group problem as as you might want to call it has been in the in the news constantly and this bill does also try to address that. And you'll you'll see them talk about producing a report on cyber vulnerabilities that you have procured through a foreign commercial provider, including a description of the vulnerability. This is a classified report attempting to establish a position for Congress that is allowing it to do proper. It's sort of a first step, shall we say. So I think there's a lot of stuff in this bill that's that's very interesting and relating to vulnerabilities in cyber. Yeah. So so who would you say... Putting us, who would you say is in the best in the vulnerability market? Uh, I keep hearing the Argentines because they don't they don't ha- actually have a need to hack anybody, so they can sell their stuff. Uh, you, you got any preferences among the independent countries uh, as sources of? Villainous? You're not, you're not going to like my answer because honestly, I personally think the Chinese are the best in business right now. And I, are they selling their stuff? I, I don't know, but I mean, there's certain, maybe they don't have to sell it. They're certainly giving it away at Tianfu Cup and a few other places as almost right. a signal of strength. 
Yeah. And and I think it's it's worrying to me how good they are. And it so should what be you're worrying saying to is, you. Is, is, is the stuff that, that people go to disclose that the cup is so good, you have to figure they're only giving away things that they can afford to give away and that the government will let them give away. So they must be giving much better stuff to the government. Is that, that what you're saying? I think that's true. And I think the government is getting first dibs on what's what's happening at Tian Fu Cup as well. We've seen things from there turn up in operations against the Uyghurs and other things that the Chinese would naturally target. So it wow. it is both things. It is both a signal of strength and one that I pay close attention to and also uh, an operational need you know they're no longer allowed to do you know the standard american pwn to own contests and that sort of thing so the answer is sad right like you don't want this to be the answer but the answer is who are the best it might be the chinese we should we should be clear-eyed about it it used to be they they weren't respected quite that much but if they are better than the u.s at that we should stop bragging about how we have really superior cyber capabilities because i suspect it's not true i was always suspected that we put more effort into limiting the scope of our attacks than to making sure they worked and that's a big budget item but it doesn't make you a better attacker well, it makes you better in one sense. It makes you more responsible. It yes. makes you, you know, playing by rules that you want everyone to play by. And I think there's a huge value to that. And Rob Joyce, I think, said some of this in an interview last week as well, where he said the scale and scope of the Chinese effort is just off the charts right now. And that's what he's seeing. And I think that's what everyone, everyone with a uh, telemetry connection is seeing as well. Well, this is very discouraging. It means they, they, they're still reading our national security assessments and, and acting on them before we do. So we got one more piece of legislation I want to cover because uh, the Senate Intel Committee has come up with their idea of what a cyber incident reporting uh, requirement should be. And it is really tough, Dimitri, isn't it? Well, I think it's long overdue, to be honest with you, Stuart, because right now you have this patchwork of 50 states and GDPR in Europe and other jurisdictions around the world that are mandating disclosures primarily focused on impact to PII, personal identifiable information. Right. And of course, there are two problems with that. One, you have a lot of serious breaches that, from a national security perspective, the government needs to know about, like SolarWinds, for example, where no PII is taken, so there is no reporting um, requirement. But two, I've seen this firsthand, companies that get victimized actually have now an incentive not to figure out what was taken and just want to recover and rebuild without finding out if any PI was taken because then they don't have to report it. And that doesn't serve anyone, not the broader ecosystem, not the government, and frankly, not even those companies directly. So a national breach notification law that would preempt the state laws and would balance out this focus on PI with more national security concerns, I think is completely warranted. Now you have three, three bills actually in Congress right now that are being considered. The first one was the Warner Rubio bill from the Senate Intel Committee. And I think there were a lot of people in Congress who were miffed that the Senate Intel Committee was sort of taking this jurisdictional grab to regulate something that would typically be done by the Homeland Security Committee. But they were the first ones with a proposal. It's a pretty tough proposal. It does require notification of a broad set of issues, which um, I think is a good thing, but it imposes very strict fines um, of up to 0.5% of uh, previous year's gross revenues per day. Per day, per, per day. day. <laughs> so it, it is yes. uh, very, very significant. And it has a 24-hour reporting requirement, which uh, a lot of companies are very concerned about. It also has a requirement for incident response service companies to be notifying as well. And it's not quite clear whether they should be notifying when they themselves get compromised or when their customers get compromised. And that, of course, can have a That's huge implication. That's kind of awkward. It's a little awkward if you're a cyber response company and you have an obligation to turn in your customer. But not, not many it's quite be, possible that that's what's intended. Yeah, not, not many will be uh, hiring incidents response companies as a result. <laughs> but then you have both the House and the Senate Homeland Security Committees, which have more or less the same bill, the Peters-Portman on the Senate and the Clark-Catco bills. And they're a little more lenient. They allow for 72-hour reporting. They don't have any fines. They provide some subpoena power to CISA 
to get this information. Of course, the question is how would the, the CISA, CISA authorities know in the first place that they have to subpoena companies to get it? And then there's some threat of civil action as well that the government can take against those companies, but it's fairly vague. And I, I do think that there needs to be a middle ground here that some fines are appropriate to actually force companies to report, but perhaps not 0.5% of previous year's gross revenues. Yeah. That seems like a very European, heavy-centric, fine-centric approach. Yes, well, the, 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 the EU under GDPR can take up to 6% of your gross global revenue. So if you, if you failed for two weeks to report something, you'd already be past that. You just blow past the EU's outrageous enforcement mechanism. Uh, so I, I, I do think this is um, interesting. I wonder if the Senate bill is deliberately tough because they're no, they know they're going to a kind of comp- a conference with a House bill that is much weaker, and they want to have as much bargaining leverage as yeah. possible. Well, remember, there are two Senate bills, the Senate Intel Committee bill that we just talked about and the Senate Homeland Security Committee bill, which is almost identical to the House. So clearly Portman and, uh, and Peters are interested in, in getting back their jurisdictional authority over DHS and, and uh, keeping the Intel Committee out of, out of this. But we'll see what comes out of it. I, I do think that both Warner and Ruby, it's really a bipartisan issue, feel very strongly that fines are required. And I think Portman even feels that way on the Homeland Security Committee in the recent hearing with Jen Easterly. He asked her point blank if she supported fines and, and Easterly said, yes, she did. So I do think that there's support in the administration for it as well. So we'll see how it all ends up. Of course, they have a huge legislative agenda with the debt limit and the infrastructure bills and reconciliation bills and the government funding that has has to happen in December. So I'm not sure any of these bills will see the light of day. And next year, of course, is the election. So remains to be seen if anything actually will pass. It, it, it does, although this is one where they have managed to be pretty bipartisan right along. And and that's not true of any of the other bills that you've uh, named. So it may be uh, as a matter of exhaustion, they say, let's pass something that we agree on. We'll see. Well, speaking of enormous fines, Google is subject to a $5 billion antitrust fine, mainly because of how it administers Android. Mark, uh, uh, have you followed this? There, Google is now taking the EU to court, as I understand it. Yeah, they, there was a court hearing this week, ran over several days, and it goes back to the 2018 uh, decision that the commission made, where they, they condemned a number of Google practices. One was their their practice of, of tying or bundling and required the mobile phone manufacturers to pre-install Google Search and Chrome in order to get access to the Play Store, which is a must-have kind of thing. And it condemned their, their, their exclusivity payments to manufacturers to pre-install Google Search app. And, and it condemned the, the anti-fragmation rule that it had that, that said manufacturers couldn't get access to uh, to pre-installation of the Google apps if they sold any device that ran an incompatible version of Android. And those three combined offenses garnered a fine of 4.3 billion euros, which is 5 billion in today's dollars. Now, Google actually complied with all the orders. They they offered a a user search choice and it changed its anti-fragmentation and it, it had stopped the exclusive deals back in 2014. So the, the key thing is the fine. So so they had the, the court hearing this past week, and each of these issues were argued over again. On the tying or bundling issue, Google argued once again that users can always just download alternative browsers if they want or alternative search apps if they want. And the commission said once again that the status quo bias leads users not to do that. So the court is really going to have to evaluate, and this is really the first time a European court has evaluated this, whether these kind of nudges and choice architectures that Google is engaging in to move their users in certain directions, whether that that can be a matter of abusive dominance. And observers were sort of divided on how the court might rule after the argument. On the exclusive this, installation... This is, I should say, this, this is just the court of first instance. It's going to get appealed to yeah, the uh, yeah. European it, it Court of up, Justice. Yeah, this, yeah. yeah this is not, it's not called the general court, but it's the old court of first instance. And they'll take about a year to evaluate all this, and then it'll go on to the, the European Court of Justice. So it, it's, it's, it's a long way from a final 
decision. On the second thing, the, the, the exclusivity deals, the courts, some observers seem to think that the court might be thinking that the commission went too far there. These payments for exclusivity might very well be permissible under a European Court of Justice ruling back in, in 2017 in the Intel case. Huh. And, and one of the judges in the court in, in this week's proceeding said, hey, what, what happens if we partially annul the decision? And that, that led some people to speculate that it might be interested in overturning this part of the commission's decision. You know, I got to say, I, just as a matter of policy, of all the things that, that the EU objected to, I thought the most objectionable was the paying people for exclusivity. But, you know, anti-fragmentation, anybody who uses Android wants more anti-fragmentation, I think. Uh, and uh, nobody's harmed by, uh, you know, having a Google search engine installed already. I, the, the, these, those strike me as, uh, and the, 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 the unwillingness to consider Apple a competitor of Android, all of those things were weird. But saying, no, you shouldn't pay people to be exclusive struck me as, as more of a problem. The oddities of the intricacies of, of European competition law, it, it really is a thing to behold. Uh, and actually on the anti-fragmentation stuff, I mean, it looked to observers as though it's going to be a jump ball on that too, on this choice between okay. system stability okay. and competition. By the way, it, it, it's, it's worth mentioning that the South Korean Competition Authority in September also barred Google from requiring device man manufacturers to, to sign anti-fragmentation agreements. So this kind of thing oh, is... Oh, well, there's a big surprise with Samsung as the, as yeah, the, as the party that go. most wants to fragment uh, Android, yes. <laughs> yeah, so it, it'll, be, it'll be another year or so before we get anything. Now, it, you know, just thinking about this stuff, Google's had to comply with this decision for, for almost three years now, and it, it has provided users with a choice screen of alternative search engines. But you know, so far there's been not a, a single budge in their market share. And, and this really suggests that this might once again be a, a matter of antitrust coming into the game a little bit too little and a little bit too well, and maybe just wrong. I, you know, I, I use Bing a lot, and it's not as good as Google. It's pretty good, but I, 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 I would, if I had one, it would probably still be Google, right? And so it may just be consumer choice. I think, in fact, the Europeans choose Google for their search engine more than Americans do. Yeah, yeah, the market share is, is higher in the in, in Europe. But anyhow, if if you are concerned about Google's search monopoly, which is really there, if you're if you're concerned about it, it may be that the the moment of intervention is passed and it, the market is tipped and it's now a durable monopoly. And then the question is, so so what? What what, what does antitrust do about that? And that's always the question for antitrust when they're faced with those kind of situations. Okay, so Dimitri, there's a whole bunch of stories that I I grouped under the heading the successfully bracketing their target, in which authoritarian regimes have managed to get various big tech companies just to dance to their tune. And what's striking about some of this is they are now uh, saying you need to uh, dance to our tune outside of Russia and China. We want you to be doing stuff that affects Americans and Germans. One of them is Russia saying, hey, YouTube, you took down German content from RT that you said was kind of anti-science and misinformation about COVID, if I remember right. You need to put that back. So they're basically overriding whatever the German content rules are, or, or maybe YouTube's own rules. And, you know, now that people's staff, Google has staff in Russia, I, you know, it's a little questionable whether you can just say, hey, we don't listen to you when you try to set uh, standards for other people's content. Well, you know, folks in the Valley for the last 20 years have been talking about how their soft power trumps national power of governments. And this is a rude awakening for them. The reality is that people that have the guns will always have the power, people that have the power to um, take away your freedoms. And it's no accident that you have Russia passing laws and other countries looking at passing laws to require these tech companies to have personnel in country, which will be basically potential hostages in case of disagreements. And, you know, as our friends at Risky Biz wrote in their last newsletter, the companies will really have three choices. They will either uh, need to decide not to enter markets where they may be asked to do things that conflict with their ethics. 
to the extent that they have any and withdraw from those markets if, if they're already there or capitulate to them. And so far, uh, everyone seems to be preferring the third option. Google has capitulated, Apple has capitulated, LinkedIn has capitulated to China in enforcing censorship requirements there. They all are looking at the huge opportunities to make revenue, particularly in China, but amazingly even in Russia and deciding that they'll look the other way when they're being asked to do things that we would find highly objectionable. So Apple capitulated uh, by pulling an app that was used by the opposition in the election for a kind of strategic voting. LinkedIn, Microsoft, caved in in a weird way. They are now doing censoring for the government and telling uh, they told a reporter that was active on China affairs that her professional description was unacceptable, couldn't be run in China. And they basically said, you need to change it, not just change it for China. You need to change it, which means, you know, it's not like they would say, if you change it, we'll run it in China differently. It's basically, you want, if you want it to run in China, it has to be changed for everybody. And, and, and so- And by the way, I would, I would consider that a feature, not a bug, because if you're not on LinkedIn in China, you'll probably get a lot fewer spearfishes from Chinese national intelligence agencies. <laughs> that's, that's probably right. <laughs> but LinkedIn is the only social media, to the extent that it's social media, from the U.S. that still operates at scale in China. So they must value that. Microsoft values that, I'm sure. All right. Um, well, I wanted to go back. To, uh, Dave uh, suggested we go back and look at this because it's something we didn't cover last week. And could have and it just didn't get we just didn't get to it which is the story of the FBI having a key to the ransomware attack on Kaseya which would have enabled decryption of a lot of files because Kaseya basically they were able to, through Kaseya to access a whole bunch of different uh, files for different companies and lock them up. The, the FBI said, if I remember, we were going to do something. We were going to run an operation against the ransomware gang, and we didn't get to it in time before they shut down for the August Black Sea vacation. Uh, and, and so <laughs> uh, we never gave the key to people who could use it, and we didn't get to use it ourselves. And they're taking a fair amount of heat on the Hill for that. Dave, you said you thought it was a little more complicated than that. Well, Stuart, you know how we have a vulnerabilities equities process that we have just beat to oh, a dead yes. horse over the course of, you know, five, 10 years. What we don't have is a, you know, stolen keys from ransomware organizations equities process or a, a scrap. <laughs> and it looks like the equities issues here got a little out of hand or we're just, are just very hard to represent, you know, once things have sort of gone all wrong and then now you're in the press getting beat up quite a bit. You know, people have said that one of the FBI's real strong suits is uh, issuing press releases about operations they did. <laughs> and this, was, this is not one of their shining <laughs> moments. Let's just right. put it that way. Because, you know, one of the things they said was, and I hesitate to say this again, is that, the the effect of the ransomware wasn't so bad that they 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 made the choice you know that they would have made the choice to give out the keys to the affected Whoa. parties and that is just a very tone deaf thing to say when a lot of the you know these are small and mid-sized right. companies right so the, the the message that the fbi will help you if you're a very big you know partner of theirs but they won't help you if you're you know the local grocery chain is really yeah. rough i think on their local image and it should be right that's that's not good that's not good to see and i hope that's not how they think but about it, it, it um, there, there, there is something well. to be said for the idea that look after three or four days uh giving people the key might not do that much good because at that point they've already uh, started on some other form of remediation and it takes a while these keys are not it's not just magic you don't just wave the key over your network and get back all your data so there's a point at which the key has less value to the the victims than it might have to the the fbi well i think there's a lot of like there was also some a little a little bleep glimmer of them saying that the operation they were planning was planned in conjunction with other foreign partners. Uh -huh. And so they themselves had to work through their partnership issues before they gave the key up. And I think, yeah, there's a lot of random smoke and yeah. cover for what the FBI did. But you can't, it, 
Either way, everyone got yeah, stinky yeah, on them. Yeah, they did. Right? So this is the worst case scenario. Your operation didn't go forward. You had no effect on the adversary. You didn't help out your domestic partners. They need to go elsewhere if they want help. That, that's not a good no. message. You know what I'm saying? Like, so, and, and we should call out their failures as much as we call out their successes. It's not that they don't have Dimitri. successes. Dimitri. Well, I, just, just to add really quickly, to contradict uh, Dave a little bit, there was an equities review process because the FBI didn't make the decision on their own. They did go to the White House. They presented the case. Obviously, they argued for the case of keeping the key and conducting the operation. And the White House sided with them. So there was a review and discussion that occurred. My bigger issue is the operation, this takedown operation that they were planning. If the criminals decided to do it to themselves, i.e. shut down their servers before the FBI could shut down them, how valuable was it going to be in the first place? And I think we should be much more creative in thinking about what actually has an effect on the adversaries and not just pat us on the back when we do something that's that can be quite meaningless. Yeah. So instead of this, this elaborate key-based attack, we could just mail them tickets to the Black Sea. Yeah, I totally agree. It, some of these operations, I think we're still learning how to do the doctrine of offensive counter-cyber and so you still see some sort of growing pains as we go through here. And I was being and, a little and, flippant with the, you know, equities yeah. process, but there, this has to and, get matured. And what I see on the offensive cyber is the government not starting with a question of what can we do that will be impactful, but starting with a question of what can we do? And let's go for that, regardless of whether the impact is there or not, because we're going to feel good that we're doing something. And that's really absolutely the wrong way to go about it. It's not how our, our adversaries are thinking. But unfortunately, we're, we're in many ways not organized for success uh, right now. So I, I do want to ask you guys about two criminal cases involving Russia, uh, it, which I do not understand completely. And maybe you've got better insight. The Russians busted one of their cybersecurity executives for treason. This is the second one they've busted for treason, uh, if I remember right. Uh, and I'm, I, I'd love to hear what you think treason means to, to the Russian state. And then at the same time, this scammer who was arrested in Israel and extradited to the United States, that the Russians just moved heaven and earth to get him back, including arresting an Israeli woman and holding her hostage. Uh, they finally got her, got him back. He didn't finish his sentence in the U.S. He got about, I think, halfway through it and then got a, they put him on a plane and sent him to, uh, to Russia. I, do you guys have any insight into either of those cases? Yeah, so on the first case, you know, the clear message that the Russian government is sending, and this is not the first time that they've arrested someone involved in cybersecurity for treason. They, they did a famous case in 2016, arresting one Kaspersky executive and one member of the um, FSB criminal investigative, who I believe both have been convicted now, or, or at least awaiting trial for treason, under very similar circumstances as this recent case with Group IB. And the common thread across all these cases, at least of what they're being accused of, is that they collaborated with foreign law enforcement to discover Russian hackers. So I think overall that doesn't bode well for our engagement with Russia and trying to collaborate on shutting down criminal organizations, including ransomware, if they're going to prosecute people in Russia that uh, are actually working with U.S. law enforcement. But it's a very murky case, and there's uh, an individual that was running this spam service called Chronopay that was involved kind of peripherally with Brian Krebs and the famous Washington Post reporter, now blogger, and all of these individuals, and there's speculation that he may have been involved in sort of pressuring the law enforcement authorities to go after these individuals because of personal vendetta. So Russia law enforcement landscape can be very murky, and sometimes sort of national security explanations aren't sufficient to really appreciate what is going on. In the second case, you know, I think it actually is a pretty straightforward case. I, I don't think that this was an exchange where we actually we let this person go back to Russia. I don't think we got anything back in exchange for it either. He had served most of his sentence now in the U.S., and then he also served uh, a number of years in Israel while he was waiting for extradition. That's so how he did it. Credit for time served in, uh, in pretrial detention. Yes, that would make sense. That's what's going to... That's what, Yeah, that, that's, that's a distinct possibility. That is what's going to work for Julian Assange. At some point, he will have served uh, enough time to so that almost any crime you convicted him of, he's already going to have to be released. Dave, your thoughts on these? I, I think it's, it's worth pointing out that if... If, as people say, the Russian intelligence and criminal organizations have tight links, that if you are 
in the business of finding Russian criminals and bringing them to the attention of, for example, United States law enforcement, then you are having an impact on their intelligence collection. When those things are mixed, it's sort of inevitable that they have to provide some level of protection. And I think that's part of what we're seeing is sort of like you may be you may be as a Kaspersky, as a group IB, who's I think the executive who was just picked up. You may be doing exactly what a normal executive would be doing against a Russian criminal group or a criminal group you didn't know was Russian to begin with and can trespass in on against national security for real. Like if that's if they're connected, they're connected. So I think that's sort of a weird and difficult policy choice on both sides. I, I'm glad I'm not a Russian cybersecurity executive, so though, it, by it, any it, means. It, it, it's it's like law enforcement of all sorts in Russia. It, it, the law works unless you go after the wrong person, and then it suddenly works against you. Sounds sounds like a rough way to live, yeah. to be honest. I'm <laughs> really glad we're not in that position. <laughs> okay. I, I want to go back to the FTC, Mark. Uh, the, one of the Democratic commissioners had a long speech on algorithms and economic justice that I thought was appalling, to tell the truth, and, and a, a, a sign of what we're going to see out of the FTC to come. Alvaro Bedoya is the other FTC commissioner who isn't chairman, who is awaiting confirmation. That could take a while. So we're going to have an FTC, actually, I guess, that has a, a chairman and one Democrat and two Republicans. Does that mean that the chairman actually can't do a lot of things that she might otherwise want to do? Yeah, this this two to two split at the FTC, it, it they might be able to overcome it. Alvaro Bedoya is a privacy expert. He's from Georgetown. He you know he's a colleague, and he, he but he's got no hearing scheduled in the Senate at this point. It's possible for the Senate to get him through on a party line vote. It's likely that the Republicans will vote against him. But until then, the FTC is going to be frozen, and it's not at all clear to me how long the Senate's going to take to do this. It, it's got some breathing room right now. The there's the slowdown because the reconciliation talks are dragging on, but but they're going to need to move quickly if they want the FTC to be able to act. And and all of those other things that the, the Commissioner Slaughter was talking about, even if they're within the FTC's jurisdiction, which I doubt, you know, they, they probably won't proceed any at all in the, in the in the face of a two to two tie. Yeah, certainly, in the, the same time. with the privacy yeah. rules that other people are talking about. Same thing with two to two ties. Privacy rules are are not about to be processed at the FTC. So the Senate really has to get going if they want the FTC to be functional. Yeah, it sounds like it'll take a while. I agree with you. It would be, should be hard for Commissioner Slaughter to sell this stuff. I, I, her argument is, well, unfair means it's not fair. And implicit bias or you know, bias in the algorithm is unfair. And therefore, we can determine that it, it shouldn't be allowed. I think we're going to see yeah, I, I, I don't see it. I don't see it. I don't see it. And I mean, it seems to me that disparate impact is with the the, uh, the other agencies. It's not re- really within the ambit of consumer harm under the FTC's unfairness authority. So I think she's reaching for that. Okay. I mean, she's got some uh, grounds for it. I mean, to the extent they in- enforce the fair lending laws, that's a hook, but it's a small one. F- FCRA is a good hook, but it doesn't have the basis for reviewing disparate impact. So I, I think her her disparate impact stuff is, is probably not going to be something the commission can So she on. had some a, a fairly clever idea in which she said, right now we have the ability to do disparate impact on mortgage lending and to basically mm-hmm. say to lenders, you have to meet uh, certain racial quotas or we're going to uh, find you to be acting unfairly. But they don't have the data on other lenders. And she said, but those lenders are free to give us to collect the data and then they could give it to us and we could judge them based on the data that they collect. And if they don't collect it, maybe we should draw adverse inference from their failure to collect it. So she's clearly trying to squeeze people to gather racial data about other borrowers so that she can push an equity agenda into other economic areas. You don't think that's going to work? I don't think she can leverage the fair lending laws in in that way. I mean, it's clear that the, there there is a need for good data to enforce the fair lending laws, but that really is, by and large, under the jurisdiction of other agencies. The F- FTC has a small part of that jurisdiction, but it's really not a, a major part 
of the enforcement of the fair lending laws. So I, I, I think it's a it's, it's a detail. It's not really a major function of what the FTC does. Okay, so now we're going to do a, a, a brief public service announcement about ways in which your two-factor authentication could be compromised. This was kind of, this was kind of interesting, Dimitri. This was from Krebs, and it was a public service. How cleverly people have found ways to get around all of the, even, even the in-app authenticators like Google's can be compromised if you're willing to read that number out to somebody who calls you. That's right. And of course, no security mechanism is a panacea. We've known this for a long time. And that's why I'm always hesitant when people are recommending that if you only do cyber hygiene, if you only use multi-factor and strong passwords and the like, you'll be secure. And we just know that that's not true. Because the criminals are very innovative and they've been doing this for quite some time where if you're using an SMS-based two-factor, so if you put in your password and then you get a text on your phone with a unique code that you need to put in, criminals have targeted that by doing um, SIM card swapping, stealing your phone number effectively, or in some cases, as Krebs points out, setting up these services that will actually text you or call you, uh, specifically asking for your one-time authentication code that then enter instead of you in sort of the middle, man of the middle attack into your bank or um, other service provider that you're try, trying to log into. We've seen man in the middle interceptions inside your browser where you're going to the login prompt of your website, but your browser will actually do an overlay of another uh, text field that will capture your credentials and then we'll pass it on. So there are ways to defeat all of this. It of course makes it harder for the criminals. So I'm all in favor of multi-factor, but we just need to be realistic that there's no one thing that you can do that will make you magically secure. Okay, so very quick items. Uh, This is is good news. China has drawn up a a plan that says we want algorithms, uh, the algorithms that recommend, you know, recommendation algorithms and the like that our social media companies are running, including TikTok. Those need to be controlled and reviewed by provincial censorship authorities. And I say that's good news, and it's obviously bad news for the Chinese companies and the Chinese people, but it probably means an end to innovation of the sort that will catch up with or surpass U.S. algorithms in the near term. At least that's my hope, is that the heavy hand of Chinese government and the fear of doing something wrong means people will hesitate. They'll look for reassurance before they do it. It'll take a months where it used to take days. Uh, and we'll slowly see a drying up of the creativity that we saw out of Chinese tech companies over the last decade. So that's, that's my theory. We'll see whether it's true. I want to ask Dave this one. Virgil Griffith is an Ethereum developer who went to North Korea to give them lectures about using cryptocurrencies without getting a license from the U.S. government. And he was charged with violating uh, U.S. law, which is not a surprise. He just pleaded guilty. And I still don't understand why he did this. Uh, is is this just some part of a libertarian ethos that got him interested in Ethereum in the first place? Or is there something else going on? It, it does feel that he, he did it for ideological reasons. And again, this is sort of another one of those cases where we don't know the full story of what, you know, the North Koreans did when they started trying to recruit him. Because to me, this feels like part of a sophisticated recruitment mm-hmm. effort on the part of the North Koreans and a successful one. I mean, he did apply for a license to fly to North Korea and give a talk. It got denied and then he did it anyway. Uh, And I honestly probably would say that the things he talked about were nothing the North Koreans didn't already know. The North Koreans are extremely sophisticated when it comes to cryptocurrency. It's not their first day at the rodeo, right? So, so, the penalty he's looking at right now is on the order of five and a half years. You know, I don't want to try to figure out, you know, what the exact amount of time he's likely to serve is. It's definitely not my specialty. But you do feel you do feel like he got caught up in something way above yeah. his head and is now being a case example for the, everybody in the whole world on, you know, what the United States takes seriously and what we don't. And we take this very seriously and you know, his life. You said he is an Ethereum developer. I would say he was okay. an Ethereum developer. I doubt he'll be touching any code. Well, I, actually, any I think they, they busted him and put him in the, in the worst 
prisons in America because he did try to reach out they and did. manipulate some of the cryptocurrency that he already had. And that, well, to be fair, he was he trying would, to pay yeah. his lawyer, and, right? And really, so he probably doesn't a, there's have no, any there's other no higher value than that. Assets. That's, that's the most important thing you can do. I, I'm with you on that. So, so. I don't think it's not like he was trying to move his money right. to hide it overseas. He was trying to pay his, his legal bills, and that's probably the only way he knew how. And so, you know, there is something sort of very human and very tragic about this story. You know, it is easy to see him, you know, talking about how he's in, you know, he's basically being tortured essentially in, in this correctional facility, and he feels bad. I get it. it. Sounds like he's clinically depressed as a result of this. And then he just gave up. I mean, he had great lawyers. They, 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 because he did have the money to pay for them. And he just said, "I just can't. I can't. I can't take it. I want to get it over with. Take me someplace else." Yeah. Yeah. Well, and the system does break people. And I, I don't honestly have high hopes for his, you know, going to trial. It did not look like he had that much of a case. I don't know that that would have resulted in a better solution for him. So hopefully, he followed his lawyer's advice. But it is. It's one of those things where. Did he did he do enough wrong to justify five and a half years in the kind of situation he's in right now? Um, I would say, you know, maybe. I, I, I don't know. I don't want to be too retro. It's another retro, retribution right. versus uh, mercy kind of event. Okay. But, you know, look, criminals like this always look pitiful once they've been caught. Possibly. Yeah. So Possibly. I, I've got two yeah. cases I want to cover. I, we don't have time to to go into them in any detail, but they're both kind of interesting. In U.S. against Wilson, the Ninth Circuit said if the if Google finds a, uh, you know, a Gmail with attachments and it applies those child porn hashes that everybody uses, and it says those that's child porn, 99.99% uh, certainty that that's child porn, we can't open them because we're not allowed to have child porn, so we're spent sending them to NCMEC, which is what everybody does, and then NCMEC handed it off to law enforcement. Law enforcement opened it up and said, yep, child porn, let's get a, a, a search warrant to look at the guy's computer. And the court said, oh, you can't open that. That's a search without a warrant, which is, you know, aggravating given that it's 99.99% certain that it's child porn without looking at it and that they the government could have gotten a search warrant. And I suppose that's what makes this sort of a, a nothing burger at the end of the day. It just means that from now on, when you when when law enforcement gets child porn that's been identified using one of these uh, hashes, they will first apply for a search warrant saying we have probable cause. We have 99.99% probable cause to open it. And the court will say, yes, you do. And then they'll open it and then they'll go in and get a second. So it's a 24 hour speed bump, but it was an interesting case. The more interesting, even more interesting, but probably less likely to make law is a uh, decision out of a magistrate judge and who obviously is looking to make a name for herself. It's this long, she was a prosecutor, a long discussion of whether the Gambia, a country which is pursuing probably at the instance of a bunch of human rights groups, a, a claim against the Myanmar government for genocide, wanted to get access to a whole bunch of messages that had been taken down a, as inauthentic behavior. I think by Facebook. And they took them down, deleted the accounts, but kept the messages. Some of them were public, some of them were private or quasi-private. Uh, and so the Gambia comes in and says, we'd like you to give them to us. And Facebook says, I'm sorry, we can't do that without a subpoena. And you can't get a subpoena for this stuff, essentially, because the Stored Communications Act says we have to, we, we can't provide it except to a U.S. government in response to a subpoena. So that's where things stood when it went to the magistrate judge. And the magistrate judge said, oh, actually, if you take the stuff down, it's not really being stored anymore for the customer because the customer has no access to it. So the Stored Communications Act and its restrictions on, on giving away people's stuff doesn't apply anymore. And so just hand it over. Uh, it was a, a tour de force of reasoning. It's going to be a remarkable thing because it means that, I mean, taking down accounts is increasingly what all of the censors do. And now all of the stuff that they have been taking down, most of which they have refused to give to government, even when it's a 
terrorist organization they don't hand it over. It's now, at least according to this particular magistrate, fair game. They they need to turn it over on request, or at least they are free to turn it over on request. Very interesting I, I suspect not long for this world interpretation, but it's close enough to write that the, the district court, when they take the, a look at this, is going to be puzzled over how to resolve this. And so maybe a combination of this is a country asking, this is a shocking case of the genocide, Facebook is defending itself and Facebook should always lose. All of those principles, uh, those political principles might might lead to the vast empowering of the safety authorities in these governments because now if they think you've said something that is hate speech or misinformation, not only can they take it down your account, but they can hand you over to the authorities without further ado. So if you're paranoid, if you were paranoid before, you should be even more paranoid now. Last topic. I just love this story, Dimitri. Uh, a Samson and Delilah painting, supposedly by Peter Paul Rubens, was reviewed by AI, and it said, we're 97% sure this is a fake. 91. Since they'd paid, you know, this was the British Museum, I think, that had paid, uh, the National Gallery, had paid millions for this thing and had defended against attackers for years, and that just got their head handed to them by this AI. Well, we, we finally found a useful thing for AI. I'm happy to 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 determine. Oh, I think it's it's, it's probably uh, biased against look, the Dutch. Come on. <laughs> exactly, but I do look forward to the day when we will have AI painting forged paintings to defeat AI identification of forged paintings. I'm sure <laughs> that's that's, that's, that's next, soon. isn't it? <laughs> okay, it'll be uh, what do they call that? Uh, generative adversarial Adversar AI. Adversarial <laughs> AI. <laughs> Yeah. Okay, listen, this has been a great session, as I suspected it was going to be. We went way over, but you guys are terrific. Mark, Dimitri, Dave, uh, thanks for joining us. Uh, if you're listening uh, this far, please send comments to cyberlawpodcast at stepto.com. I want to thank Weissman Sound Design for the music. This has been episode 377 of the Cyberlaw Podcast, brought to you by Steptoe and Johnson. Mm -hmm.